0: We've been working our way through the book of Ephesians. We've been here for about a year now, and uh, today we are going to find ourselves in chapter 6, and as you can see, we're working on the armor of God. But for those of you who were not with us last week, what we learned is we were working on the armor of God. We learned what my dad means when he tells me to get up my galluses. How many remember us talking about that last week? My dad says, Scott, do you believe in the hereafter? Does anybody else know this one? Do you believe in the hereafter? Because if you don't get up your galluses, you're going to be hereafter I'm gone. That's what my dad used to tell me all the time. And so we talked about that briefly and we decided that it's the same thing as girding up our loins. And so last week we had a model with us who stood up here very bravely and he put on his cloak and he girded up his loins by taking the hem of his cloak and tucking that into his belt. And we said that the basic message in the concept of girding up our loins is preparedness. It means that we have to be ready. And we illustrated that by recounting the escape of the Israelites from captivity in Egypt and how the Lord told them on the night of the first Passover, He said, make sure that you eat your meals with your loins girded. I want you to have your loins all girded up so that you're ready to go. I want your staffs in your hands, and I want your shoes on your feet. That from Exodus chapter 12. And we decided that the message that God was trying to give to the Israelites was this. Be ready to go. I want you to be ready to go because we're going to leave in a hurry and you need to be ready. And and that is the exact same thing that my dad meant when he would tell me to get up my galluses, or I would be here after he was gone. It means you better get ready. You better move quickly because you have to be ready to go. When I say it's time to go, we're going and we're going to leave right now. So what is it that we as believers need to be ready for? I want to take you to verse 12, and this is what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12. He says, look, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Verse 13, therefore, because of all of that truth, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand You need to be able to withstand. You see, we need to be ready for the battle or the wrestling match against spiritual darkness, against the forces of spiritual darkness. There is a spiritual battle that rages all around us, and it is active all the time. The enemy of your souls, my friends, seeks to destroy you. You need to know that. He seeks, first of all, to destroy your relationship with God, and secondly, he seeks to destroy your relationships with one another he wants to destroy you he wants to derail your faith he wants to keep you from having right standing before God that's what he wants to do and if you are to have any hope withstanding his attack against your very souls you need to take up the whole armor of God that's what Ephesians chapter 6 tells us and the very first piece of armor that you need to take up is the one we discussed last week and that's the belt of truth So the first half of verse 14 tells us that we are to gird up our loins in truth. We are to prepare ourselves in truth. And that's what we discussed last week is that we are to be being made ready in truth or in genuineness. Do you remember talking about that? Listen, it is the genuineness of your faith that makes you ready for battle. That's what we talked about last week. If your faith is not real... If your faith is not genuine, if you are not a true believer, if you simply are an imposter who gives God a bunch of lip service, you need to know that you have absolutely no hope of being ready for the battle. You will have no hope of being ready for this life and death wrestling match against the forces of evil. You won't be prepared for that. You'll be unable to stand if your faith is not genuine. You will never be able to withstand the enemy's schemes. You'll never be able to withstand his attacks. In order to do that, you must be authentic because it is the authenticity of your faith that makes you ready for battle. Do you understand? If your faith is not real, you will never be ready for battle. Faith that is a fraud will not be able to withstand the test of trouble and trial and persecution. It just can't. It will begin to question in difficult times whether God is real. It will begin to question God's character. And it will say, how can I serve a God who would allow this injustice or that suffering? And I want you to know that that soul, the one who questions those things, the one whose heart is not genuine before God, will fall to the crafty schemes and the attack of the enemy. That's what will happen. But if your faith is the real deal, if your faith is the genuine article, if your faith has been tested, if your faith has been proven to be genuine, then you'll be prepared for battle. Then you'll be ready to stand. You'll be prepared to put on the next piece of armor, and that's what we're going to talk about this morning. You know, it wasn't long after man started to fight, after man started to battle with others, that he learned really quickly that he needed a way to defend himself or to protect himself. Because one well-placed sword, one well-placed spear to the chest and it was all over. One shot to the chest. And so man decided that what he needed to do was he needed to protect his thorax. The thorax is the area under the rib cage. It's where all the vital organs like the heart and the lungs live. That's your thorax. And he realized, you know what, I have to be careful to guard those vital organs. I have to be ready to guard those organs. Because if anything happens to them, you know what would happen? You're probably going to die. You're probably not going to make it. But below the thorax is the abdomen. Now, that's a pretty vital area as well, isn't it? Just think about that for a minute. Because that's where all of the digestive organs are. Very important. It's there that you're going to find things like your stomach, you're going to find your liver, your intestines, those kinds of things. And so if you're a soldier, if you're someone who makes a living going into battle, you'll want to make sure that you're protecting those two areas. You want to protect your chest cavity, you want to protect your abdomen. You have to be careful. And so what man did was he began to think of how he may be able to do that, and so he began to develop protective clothing. Did you know that? At first, the protective clothing was obviously pretty primitive, began to make it from animal skins. But later as civilizations began to advance a little bit and they became a little bit more sophisticated, they began to make protective coverings out of things like wood. Eventually they started taking materials like hooves of animals and the horns of animals and, and trying to form them into a way to protect their chest and their abdomen. Shortly after that, Bronze and metal workers came up with the great idea that they could take bronze and they could take metal and they could form them into a way to to cover the chest and the back. They could cover the the vital areas by fastening them all together, some of them in like chain-like materials and some of them just in segments of iron and they would fasten them all together and then drape them over their shoulders to protect the chest and belly. If you think about it, you know that our military and our police personnel, they do the same thing today, don't they? They take Vests that they've made out of Kevlar or maybe out of some sort of ceramic or some sort of composite and they cover themselves in that because they want to protect those vital areas because they know that one spear, one arrow, one knife, one bullet to the unprotected thorax and the battle is over. They know that they are likely not going to survive that. And so they cover the chest with designs and materials that are intended to keep those kinds of things out. Because we have to protect our chest. We have to protect our abdominal area or we would probably die. As Paul sat in a Roman prison where he was writing his letter to the Ephesians somewhere around 62 AD, we noted that as he was sitting there in prison, he almost certainly had in view at least one and probably more than one Roman soldier all dressed in their military battle gear. As he looked at the soldier, he saw his belt tighten around his waist and he looked at him and he saw that belt and he said to himself, You know, if that soldier doesn't gird up his loins, if he doesn't take his overcoat and tuck it into his belt, when he begins to run to go into battle, he's going to be all tangled up. This thing is going to get all tangled up around his knees and he's going to tangle up and he's going to fall. He'll never make it into battle. So he has to tuck this overcoat in. He has to tuck it into his belt. He has to gird up his loins so that he's mobile and he's ready to go. And then you can just imagine as he looked at him, he noticed the protective covering over his vital area on the Roman soldier's chest and his abdomen. And he noticed this iron breastplate of some sort, some form of covering to cover his vital areas. And I believe that it was with that in mind that he wrote this next verse in chapter six. Now, some of you may remember almost a year ago when we studied the first chapter of Ephesians. For some of you who remember that, what I'm about to say is going to be a refresher. For others of you, this may be new information, but I don't know about you, but in our family we often say, I love you with all my heart. I love you with all my heart. Or, I mean it from the bottom of my heart. All right? You love your sweetie from the bottom of your heart. You mean it from the bottom of your heart. My band teacher used to tell me when I was playing a piece of music, he'd say, play it again and this time play it from your heart heart. I want you to play it from your heart. I want you to put a little bit of feeling in it. I want you to have a little bit of emotion. And so we're saying, I love you with every ounce of my emotion. I love you with everything that is inside of me. Play this piece of music again with all of your feeling, with all of your emotion. That's how it is for us. Isn't that what that means? I love you with all my heart. Do this with all of your heart. But I want you to know that that's not how it was with the ancients and especially the Hebrews. You see, when they wanted to convey a message of feeling, do you know where the feeling was? It was in their bowels. It was in their abdomen. It was deep in their stomach. And so it seems a little bit funny to us, I think. But when you think about it, I think that it makes sense. I mean, look, if you get into a serious disagreement with somebody that you love very much, you get into a, a serious fight with your sweetie, where do you feel that when you go to work the next day? You feel it, in your, you feel it down deep in your stomach, don't you? You feel it down deep. Feels like there's a hole right in the middle of your stomach. Or how about the feeling that you get when you go away from home for the first time and you're gone for an extended period of time and you begin to feel homesick? Do you remember having felt that way? And where did you feel that? You felt that in your you felt that in your stomach. You felt it deep down, didn't you? You felt it really deep down in the middle of your stomach. Now it would seem weird for us to say, I love you with all my bowels. It would seem weird for you to say My bowels are irritated by me having left home for so long. But if you think about it, I mean, that's where all the emotion is felt, isn't it? I mean, that's where the emotion is felt. And the Greek word for bowels or the, the bed of this emotion is the Greek word splanknon. Now, there are many places where you can see splanknon in the Scripture, but I'm going to take you to 1 John chapter 3, and I want to read this to you. So follow along with me. This is what it says in 1 John 3, 17. But if anyone has the world's goods, and he sees his brother in need, and yet closes his heart or his splanknon, his bowels against him, how does God's love abide in him? You see, that's the splanknon. It's, it's your abdomen. So what John is saying here is, how can you claim that you have the love of God and yet see a fellow believer in need and not be so emotionally moved really far deep down in your abdomen to help him? How can you not feel that sense way down deep inside of you to help him? That's the splanknon. that's your emotion. But there's another word that I want to introduce you to, and it's the word cardia, and this is where we get our word Cardiac. But the cardia was a little bit different to the ancient Jew. And I want you to see what happens in the cardia. What does Proverb 23 say? As a man thinketh in his heart. As a man thinketh in his cardia, so is he. What is it that Jeremiah says in chapter 17? He says, what is it that is deceitful and desperately wicked? It's the heart. It's the cardia. It's deceitful and it's desperately wicked. It's the heart. It's the mind of man. It's his thinking patterns. It is the way that he thinks. It is his understanding. It's not his emotion. It's his thinking. It's his thought patterns. You remember in Luke chapter 24, after Jesus had been resurrected, there were a group of disciples who were on their way to the town of Emmaus, and these disciples had been with Jesus for three years listening to him teach day and night. They were with him all the time, but they hadn't really gotten it. It hadn't really sunk in in their minds. They had all the information, but it really had not taken root with them. But as they walked along the road on their way to Emmaus, all of a sudden the resurrected Jesus showed up, and the Bible tells us that he began to explain the scripture to them. And I want you to see what happened in verse 32. Look at this. They said to each other, Did our hearts not burn within us while we were on the road, while he opened the scriptures to us? Do you see this? Which word do you think they used for did our hearts not burn? Their cardia. It was their minds. It was their understanding that was on fire and burned within them as the truth finally hit pay dirt, as the truth finally made sense to them. It finally took root. And now it was a lot more than just information. It had made its way to their understanding and it really meant something to them. And their hearts, their minds, their understanding was burning within them. Now where's your heart located? Can I ask you that? How many of you know this? It's not a trick question. Where's your heart located? It's under your rib cage, isn't it? It's in the thoracic cavity. It's in the chest. Where's your splanknon? Your bowels is in the abdomen, isn't it? It's in the abdomen. Now listen, with that in mind, I'm going to take you to our passage for today. I want you to keep that in your mind and let's go to Ephesians chapter 6. And we're going to take a look at verses 13 and 14. This is what it says. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth, now look, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Okay? So now Paul says, be prepared by making sure that your faith is genuine. You've got the belt of truth. You're all girded up. Your faith is genuine. You have proven that your faith is the real deal. You've proven that you're truthful. You're authentic. Now, I want you to put on your breastplate. And interestingly... The Greek word that is translated breastplate here is the word thorax. Did you know that? It's the word thorax. And as it often happens today, the word thorax in its military sense came to be defined as the area that it protected. So they just call it the thorax. And that's what the breastplate was. In fact, you would see that in the military today. For example, if you were to be in the military and you were to step outside without covering your head someone would probably shout out at you, what? Put on your headgear, right? Put on your headgear. And what does that mean? Well, what is headgear? Well, it's the gear that goes on your head, right? It's the gear that covers your head. It could be your hat, and in some context, it could be your helmet. But either way, it's your headgear. And so that's what they called it. And it works the exact same way here. It's the same thing. What is it that the breastplate covers? It covers your thorax. And so they were saying, put on your thorax, Put on your thorax gear. Put on the things that cover up your cardia. Put on the things that cover up your splankton. Do you see? Put on the things that cover up your thinking. Put on the things that cover up your emotion. You with me? Do you see what's happening? Paul says, I want you to put on the thing that is going to help cover or protect or guard your thinking. I want you to put on the things that are going to help cover up and guard and protect your emotion because one well-placed arrow from the enemy to the places of your thinking and your emotion and you are done. Just as the heart and the abdomen are the most critical areas in the physical body, And you have to be careful to guard them and to watch over them. In the same way, friends, listen, the thinking and the emotion are the critical areas in your spiritual body. And you need to be prepared to guard them. You need to be prepared to watch them closely and to protect them. You hear? You have to be careful to guard your thinking. You must be careful to guard your emotions. I want you to know that the believer whose thought life goes unprotected, the believer who does not carefully guard his emotions, is easy prey for the schemes of the enemy. Listen to me. If you allow your thinking to take you to a place in your minds that you do not belong, the enemy will soon give you opportunity to sin in that area. Did you catch what I just said? I want to say that again. If you allow your thinking to take you to a place in your minds where you do not belong, the enemy will soon give you an opportunity to sin in that area. Think about that for a minute. If you're constantly allowing your mind to focus on how little you have materially, if you're constantly allowing your mind to make you think of how little you have while all of the people around you have nice stuff, All of the people around you are driving nice cars. They live in nice houses. They use the newest phones. And if you allow your heart to continue to dwell on that and to ruminate on that, I want you to know that it will not be long before the enemy gives you opportunity to take something that does not belong to you. Those are his schemes. That's how he works. Because he knows you're unprotected in that area. Maybe he'll give you an opportunity to take some easy money. Nobody will notice and you could just take it. Whatever it is. If you don't guard your thinking in that area, He will tempt you to sin there. How about this? Maybe you have a husband. Or maybe you have a wife who doesn't seem to be really cutting it for you lately. This is just real life, folks. You go to work. And all the men in your workplace are dressed to impress. They're, they're wearing nice clothes. And they're wearing a tie. And their hair looks sharp. And you come home from work and the very first thing you see is your overweight husband lifting his ratty old t-shirt to pull the lint out of his belly button. And you're really not all that impressed when you walk in the door and you see that. (laughs) I told you that's real life, didn't I? My kids will say, hey man, Dad, you do that all the time. Maybe guys, you keep allowing your minds to take you to a place where you imagine yourself with a younger woman or something other than what you have if you allow your minds to live there, if you allow your minds to linger there, you can be sure that the enemy will soon give you an opportunity to commit adultery. Are you hearing what I'm saying? If you're unable to control your emotions... You can be sure that the enemy is going to exploit that in your life. He's going to find that weakness and he's going to take a shot at it and he's going to give you a reason to lose your temper. Maybe you struggle with controlling your language when you become angry and you can be sure that if that's the case, you're going to get a chance to express it. Maybe, maybe you wake up in the morning and you're late for church and you find that your dog has been sick all night and uh, you explode, right? And you know, son of a bang, son of a boom, you're just letting them fire there. Listen, leave that area unprotected. Leave it uncovered. Don't guard it. Don't put something that will resist those kinds of arrows over your mind, over your thinking, over your emotion, and you can be sure that the enemy is going to shoot a well-placed arrow right there. He knows your spot. Those are the most vital areas. You need to guard them closely. So how is it that we guard the thorax of our thought and the abdomen of our emotion? How do we keep our thinking and our emotion under control? How do we keep them from being destroyed by the enemy's arrows? Well, Paul says that we need to strap on what he calls the thorax of what? Well, it's the thorax of the bre- or the breastplate of righteousness. Well, what does that even mean? I mean, how do I strap on this breastplate of righteousness? Give me something I can use. That doesn't make sense to me. How do I guard my mind? How do I guard my emotions with righteousness? So what does he mean by that, Scott? How do I guard my thoughts or emotions with righteousness? Well, in preparing for today's message, I read some commentary by several different theologians, and MacArthur, who is one of my favorites, had a commentary that I just thought his insight was right on with this, and this is what he says. He says that basically there are three types of righteousness. Self-righteousness, imputed righteousness, and practical righteousness. And so I'm going to just take a moment to touch on each of those this morning, if I could. Keep your eyes open, it's not as bad as it sounds, I promise, okay? It won't be as bad as it sounds. But first of all, I want to help you understand what Paul has in mind here. First of all, what you need to understand is what we mean by righteousness in general. You see, the first two forms of righteousness that we're going to mention are what we call positional righteousness. So they're positional in nature. And let me help untangle that for you a little bit. We're talking about our position before God. So if we are righteous before God, it means that our relationship with Him is right, or even better said, that we have right standing before God. Do you see? That's what it means to be righteous before God. That we have right standing before God. So it means that God looks at us from His judgment seat, and He makes the ruling that says, I find no fault with this one. This one is right before me. I find no fault with this one. Now, in the New Testament, we see that righteousness comes from one or of two places. It comes from one of two places. The first place is self-righteousness. So what I mean here, and this is really important for us to understand, the self-righteous man is the one who says, I will have right standing before God based on my own ability to please him. You see, I will have right standing based on my ability to please God. And so he relies on his service. He relies on his action to gain favor with God. And Satan's desire is to keep you from having right relationship with God. So he loves when someone says, I will have right standing before God based on my own actions. You see? He wants you to say that. This is one of his greatest tools of deceit. He is masterful at getting people to fall into this trap. We hear it all the time. I heard it just last week. I mean, have you ever asked someone the question, do you think that you'll go to heaven when you die? Have you ever asked that question? Do you think you'll go to heaven when you die? Well, yes, I do, Scott. I'm pretty sure of it. Really? No. Oh, that's that's great news. Why? And what's the answer? Well, I've been a pretty good guy, Right? My good outweighs my bad. You've heard it before, haven't you? This is the trap of Satan, and it is the exact same trap that the Pharisees of Jesus' time had fallen into. It's a trap. Well, my good outweighs my bad. That's what the Pharisees thought. You see, they had taken the law of God that was issued through the prophet Moses and they created this religious system of rules and regulations. And they felt that if they could just fulfill all the laws that Moses had given them, that God would be pleased and they would have right standing before him. But you see, they tried their very best to do that and unfortunately, as is always the case with a system of self-righteousness, they eventually twisted and perverted the law of God to make it be whatever they wanted it to. To be. And then when they found no fulfillment in their hearts, deep in their hearts, deep in their thinking, then what they did was they added a bunch of their own laws. And they were just out of control with the laws that they were making. Did you know that according to Jewish law, you could eat an egg that was laying on the Sabbath as long as you killed the chicken that laid it for violating the Sabbath? These are the kinds of rules, these are the kinds of regulations that they made up on their own. They came up with all of these foolish laws and soon they had completely covered themselves with so many dumb rules, with so many regulations that the worship of God had become a burden for them. And before Paul, I just love this, before he had been converted, even he had fallen into this trap. Did you know that? Paul was a Pharisee and he tells the Philippians that if any one of you, if there is anyone in the world who can find right standing before God based on their own righteousness, it would be me. That's what Paul says. In fact, if you take a look at Philippians 3 and verse 4, he says, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, this is what he's talking about, I have more. I am more self-righteous. I was circumcised on the eighth day. That's the way it was prescribed by the law. Of the people of Israel, I was of the tribe of Benjamin, one of the most favored tribes of Israel. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, I was a Pharisee. I was, as to zeal, I even persecuted the new church. As to righteousness, I was blameless. Paul says, if anybody has a reason to brag or to feel confident in their own self-righteousness, it is me. No one could have gotten closer to God based on their own self-righteousness than I could. I had the perfect pedigree. I filled every standard. I had incredible zeal. I fulfilled every single law, and I even made up a few of my own. I had them all covered. But then he says in Romans, there is how many righteous There is no one righteous. Well, except you, Paul, because you're pretty right on. There is no one righteous. Well, except for me, Paul, because I went to this class or I went to that class or I performed this ceremony or that ritual. Paul says there is no one righteous and he knows that somebody is going to say, well, wait, except for me. And what does he say? No, not even you. No, not one. There is no one righteous. No, not even one. The bottom line is that no one can be made right before God based on what he does. There is nothing that you do that will make you right before God. There is no task. There's no deed. There's no ritual that makes you right before God. And what did Jesus say? Matthew 5.20, he said, unless your righteousness surpasses that of people like Paul. Unless you're even more righteous than people like Paul, you are never going to make it to heaven. You're not going to get close. So clearly, if we try to guard our thoughts, if we try to guard our thinking, if we try to guard our emotion, with the breastplate of self-righteousness, we are not going to be very well protected, are we? Do you see that? The breastplate of self-righteousness is a pretty thin defense. So the next type of righteousness is imputed righteousness. And I want to help you understand that. And to do that, I'm going to take you back to Philippians 3 where Paul has just said, if anyone could be found righteous before God based on their own works, it's me. That's what Paul has just said. And then in verse 8, this is what he says. For his sake, that being Christ. For the sake of Christ, I have suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that is self-righteousness that comes from the law and making up all my own rules but that which comes through what faith in Christ, Listen, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So where does this righteousness come from? This righteousness comes from God. And Paul says, my own righteousness is absolutely worthless. The only way I can get to heaven is to have the righteousness of God, which is by faith in Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying here. So listen, friends, when you became a believer, when you believed that you had right standing before God because of your faith in Jesus Christ alone, when you came to the place where you realized this is the only reason that I have right standing before God because I believe in Jesus Christ at that very moment. God counted the righteousness of Jesus Christ as yours. You see? That's what imputed righteousness is. Now, you're right before God. It's as if God takes this, this righteousness of Jesus Christ and He uses it like a blanket to cover you up. And from that moment on, every time He looks at you, you are under the blanket of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And all God can see is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Do you see that? It's important for you to know you need to own that truth. He sees you as if you were just as righteous as His own sinless Son, Jesus Christ. That's how He views you. Now, this is where the third type of righteousness comes into the picture. And it's practical righteousness. You see... Once you have received the righteousness of Christ, now, Paul says, you continue to press on toward the mark. You continue to move forward day by day. You continue to weed out the behaviors that don't please God. Day by day, you eliminate the behaviors that aren't honoring of God so that you have a righteous not only in position, but you have a righteousness in practice. Do you understand? This is very important. It's not enough to just have the righteousness that has been imputed to you if you don't put it on. You see? If you think of the breastplate as if if it were the righteousness of Jesus Christ, think of the the righteousness of Jesus Christ as your breastplate, and think of you carrying out your righteous, godly behaviors as you actually donning the breastplate. Do you see? Now listen closely. I don't want you to get tangled up in this. If you have received the righteousness of Christ, you will begin to show it in your practice. If you have the breastplate of the righteousness of Jesus Christ, you will wear it. Did you get that? If you have the righteousness of Jesus Christ, if your position is righteous before God, your practice will follow your position. You see, if you're right before God, you'll begin to act like it. You begin to act like you're right before God. You begin to act like you have received the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. But you need to know you're practicing it because God already looks at you as if you are righteous. Do you understand? So in conclusion, listen friends, I want you to think of your breastplate like this. When you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you are righteous before God and he gives you the breastplate. But you put the breastplate on when you begin to exercise righteous behaviors. And I want you to know that your right standing before God does not protect you from the attack of the enemy. It only makes you a greater target for them. But when you begin to weed out unrighteous habits in your life, when you begin to weed out the things that you know do not honor God as he has outlined them in Scripture, then, friends, your thinking and your emotions will be protected. Do you understand? When you begin to live out the righteousness that has been given to you, then your thinking and your emotions are protected from the attacks of the enemy. And that's what it means to put on the breastplate of righteousness. You're still going to be attacked, probably even more than ever. But now you're protected, and you're going to be far less vulnerable. Father, I thank you so much for your mercy and your goodness to us. I pray, God, that you would help each person in this room this morning to guard our thoughts and our emotions I pray, Lord, that you would give to each of us the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and I pray that you would help us to grow in our faith, that we can act out the righteous behavior, the righteous gift that was given to us through our faith in Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, that you would help the practice of everyone in this room to match their position. As Paul has taught us before, now that we know who we are in Christ, I pray that you would help us to act like it. So Lord, if there's anybody here this morning who has not placed their saving faith in you, if there's anyone here this morning who wonders if they would be able to stand during the time of attack, I pray, God, that you would give them the courage and the boldness to reach out to you even now and to ask for forgiveness, to repent of their sins, and to turn toward you. We pray these things in Jesus' name.